we have, uh, we've been in, we've been in um, a series on the book of John, and um, today we're going to, we, we're, we're not at this point, we're kind of stepping out because we're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I hope no one here or anyone online is surprised by that, right? You go, oh, I thought you were going to talk about bunnies and stuff like that. Nope, nope. Yeah, yeah. On Easter morning, we're going to talk about the resurrection. One of my favorite theologians, uh, not Beyonce, who I've mentioned before, but also another one, um, um, uh, Curly Howard from the Three Stooges. Uh, you know, Easter morning, what a quinky dink, right? That's, that's uh, he also said, your mummy and my mummy are both mummies, so there's stuff you can meditate on there. I need to stop. Okay. We had a Good Friday service uh, this Friday, and it was, it was great. I just uh, enjoyed worshiping and talking and, and talking with others. And one of the things that we talked about a little bit is in Good Friday, what's happening there? You know, Jesus dies for his disciples. They can't believe it. This is not what they'd planned. This is not what they'd expected. For his family, for everyone, they're all going, this is the worst thing that could have happened. This is the worst thing. Nothing good can come out of this. And then Friday ends, and you go to Saturday. And oftentimes, we overlook Saturday. Saturday is that time where the worst thing has happened, and nothing else happens. No word from God. No, no little whispers of assurance. You just go through it. You just go through a horrific time with nothing. And it feels like it will never end. And I know for some of you, you may be on Saturday right now in your life. There may be something, you it's not ending. I don't know why. I have no word. I have no hope. And I'm just in Saturday. And see, we have 2020 hindsight, so we know there's Sunday. We know Sunday's coming. We know it's Easter. But I don't want to bypass this because I understand you might be in Saturday now. And if you are in Saturday now, Sunday is coming. It is. I can't tell you when. I don't know, but it is, because this is how God works. And so, we're going to look at the resurrection. We're going to look at that happening, and the key thought here is if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, then that's the ultimate truth of the universe. It takes precedence over anything else in this world. If that's true, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters even close So I want you to see in this passage, as we look at this, I want you to see one thing. I want you to see what it meant to the disciples. And I'm going to read it to you here. Verse 1, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Mary goes, Mary Magdalene, she goes, and she looks and is empty, and she's the first one to ever think of the fact that, the, that the, the, the grave may have been robbed. I mean, that's now sometimes a theory that's put up. It's been pretty well dealt with, but a theory that's put up is that somebody snuck in and stole Jesus' body. And so all the disciples are like, oh, my goodness. It's re-. So she's, she's thinking it's been stolen. So Peter and the other disciple, that would be John, started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked 
in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So I want to talk about what this means to the disciples. What's going on here? And to to understand this, we've got to understand a little bit, although this is yucky stuff sometimes, but a little bit about Jewish burial. How does that work? All right? And so what they would do oftentimes, they would take a huge piece of linen, and they would call that even a linen strip. They'd lay the body, and then they would just fold it all up. Then they would take smaller strips and tie the ankles together, tie the arms a little bit, not, not too much, tie the arms a little bit, and then secure a separate cloth over the face. Right? This is just a part, and it had all kinds of religious significance, but that doesn't matter that much for us right now. It's just that's what they were doing. And they'd fold it around, and as they were putting it on, they would have these spices, and they would be in a, like a heavy paste, and they would rub it on the body and on the cloth so that as the cloth went over it, it wouldn't get t- totally hard, but it would make it heavy, and, and it would, part of it was just simply to cover the smell of the body as it decomposed. That was the whole point of doing that. And so we're looking here, and we're seeing this is what they were expecting to see. This is what they were expecting to see. It's interesting, and it would have looked somewhat like this. You can see down towards the, mid, the waist and to the feet, you can see individual strips of cloth that are tying it, and then they just kept folding, and they'd tie, and they'd fold, and they would tie, and that's what would happen there. You know, it's interesting, every once in a while, you come across stuff that you'd never seen before, and uh, I, studying these past couple of weeks, I came across a passage, and I'd never heard it related to Jesus and the resurrection, but it's Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 8. And he says, on this mountain, that is the mountain where Jerusalem is, where Zion is, where Jesus was crucified, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. Now, that would be what most Jews would think of heaven, all right? They, They would be a little surprised that it would be for all peoples. They thought it mainly was just for them. But the idea of this rich feast for people would be kind of their uh, early, you know, this is 600 uh, B.C., their idea of heaven. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. And on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people. The shroud that is wrapping up all people. And the sheet, and that word for sheet is a face covering that covers all nations, and he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. Back in Isaiah 25, 600 years, 700 years before Jesus Christ was born, this man is saying there's going to be an event that is going to be directly connected with people in heaven, getting people to heaven, and it's going to involve a shroud. It's going to involve a face covering, and they're going to be destroyed. They're going to be removed. They're going to be null of no effect, and death will be swallowed up forever. And the sovereign Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. So they come in, and without even knowing it, you know, John talks all the time about fulfilling Scripture. They're fulfilling Scripture. They're seeing these, these, this shroud. And John, 
It says John sees here. He sees, he looks, he sees as he looks in. And, it, and it, here it's the common word for see in the Greek. Blepo is just, a, just the common word for you just see it. No, no big inference from that. You see what's in there. And what did he see from the doorway? Well, this is kind of, this is a quite an old, old painting. There's uh, John and Peter in the tomb. And it would have looked somewhat like that. The way the Greek words it is it, it would have looked somewhat like that. John sees a linen where the head was supposed to be right there. And the Greek suggests that it's not so much the grave clothes were scattered, like Jesus got up and was taking them off as he went. They were right where they were when his body was there. They're not ripped up. They're not thrown in a pile. It suggests that they were laid out in an orderly way. And so John doesn't enter. We don't know why, maybe out of respect for the dead. Maybe he thought, oh, the clothes are empty, so there's a body somewhere around the corner, and it's just going to be a pleasant sight. Anyway, he hesitates. John hesitates at the door. Guess who never hesitates? Peter, right? Peter's just like, what? He just goes in. He just goes in. And he sees, it says. It's, again, the word blepo, the regular word for see. He sees the wrappings, and he sees the faith cloth, face cloth. But then in verse 8, it's interesting how this works out. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. And suddenly the Greek switches. This is not blepo, the regular word for see. This is a different word. This is a word that etymology-wise, it's where we get our word theory. And so it has this idea, especially with coupled with the word believe, it has this idea of furious rational evaluation. Like he's studying He's thinking about the ramifications of what he's seeing. What does this mean? In other words, he enters the tomb. He doesn't simply say, oh, yeah, exactly, exactly what I expected. You know, he doesn't simply pass by and give it a glance. Go, oh, they're empty. How about that? Right? He considers, he theorizes, he wrestles with the evidence. He thinks deeply and carefully about what he's seeing in that grave in that empty tomb. You know, sometimes I think, I think it would be something like this because it's already been suggested to them. He's thinking the Lord's body must have been stolen, but how could they have left the wrappings like this? Not untied, not torn to pieces. Why would they take him without the wrappings? That body would be a mess to carry if they're going to steal it. Much simpler just to pick up the wrappings and the body all in one piece and take it. Why is the head covering right in the exact spot where it would be if there was a head there? See, he's furiously evaluating the evidence. What's going on here? So then he has to think, well, maybe Jesus wasn't dead. But he's thinking no one survives a crucifixion. That doesn't happen. And if he wasn't dead, the wrappings would have had to have been torn to pieces for him to get out of them. And finally, he's thinking, how did that stone get moved? Can you imagine? He's, he's processing. He's processing here. And he's thinking. And I'm sure it probably occurred to him, it looks like the body passed right through the grave clothes. How does that happen? So it says he believed, but in verse 9 it says he didn't believe completely. He's still having trouble grasping the implications of what he's seeing. And remember, John is writing this. John is saying, I was there. That was me. 
I believe, but then again, I didn't quite figure it out. He says, but I'm, I believe the body wasn't stolen. I believe that he didn't, just, he, was not, he didn't just swoon on the cross and suddenly wake up and walk out. He couldn't have survived that traumatic event. I saw it. But somehow he was resurrected. I don't know. I don't understand how that fully worked. That's what he's thinking. He's, saying, he's telling us he's thinking that at the time. Now, one of the very uh, classic objections to the resurrection goes a little bit like this. People say, oh, you know, back then, healings and miracles were widely accepted at that time. People were predisposed to believe in the supernatural. And so they were probably predisposed to believe that someone could rise from the dead. And we live now in the age of science. So we know that miracles can't happen. The supernatural doesn't exist. But it was easier for them to believe back then because they were more predisposed to faith than we are now in the age of science. But that That doesn't take into account one thing that I think is very powerful in this whole situation. Peter and John were Jews. They were very religious Jews. They were very religiously versed Jews. They knew the scriptures. And the resurrection was not in their worldview. The Jews had this idea of a resurrection, but it was going to come at the end time. And it was a big thing, a group event, right? But here's the deal. The resurrection doesn't fit into anybody's worldview. Never does it fit neatly into anyone's worldview. And so for Jews, they thought it's going to be a group thing. At the end of time, not at this point, at the end of time, everybody in the whole world, all the, everybody will get resurrected. It was a team thing, right? It would be like, this is, how, this is kind of how hard it would be. It would be like if I told you, that this year, the new quarterback of the Washington Commanders, Carson Wentz, is going to win the Super Bowl. Commanders. <laughs> I, don't like, I don't like that name. I'm born. I was born in Washington, D.C. I'm stuck rooting for them. But I don't like that name. I, maybe I should be careful. The owner might be watching. <laughs> yes. Okay. If you are watching, first, you need Jesus. Let me just say that. Second, sell the team, please. Please sell that team. It's not too late. Okay, all right, so there you go. So if I told you Carson Wentz is going to win the Super Bowl, you would say probably, oh, oh, the Washington team that you hate their name is going to win the Super Bowl. The whole team's going to win. No, no, I'd say no. Carson Wentz is going to win the Super Bowl. He's going to kick it off. He's going to play defense all by himself. He's going to play offense all by himself, and he's going to beat whoever it is, you know, it would be great if it was the Dallas Cowboys, but he's going to beat whoever it is all by himself. And you would say, that's stupid. You're being ridiculous. One person doesn't win the Super Bowl. It's a team sport. If you told a Jew in those days that a person would be resurrected, they would say, that's ridiculous. It's not a one-person thing. It's everybody. That's what John and Peter and James, all the disciples, Mary, Mary Magdalene, who went to the tomb there, they all believe that. This is incomprehensible. So when somebody says, oh, they were predisposed to believe it, let me tell you, they were not. They were predisposed not to believe it. So it's just not in the realm of possibility. 
That's why they are furiously examining the evidence and trying to evaluate it and figure out how to make sense of it. In every culture, in every historical moment, Eastern, Western, ancient, modern, traditional, progressive, the, ra- the resurrection never makes sense if you try to fit it in your worldview. It's, it's outside of it. There's a story in the Gospel of Luke, another story on account, an account of the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to the couple of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And after the resurrection, he appears to them. At first, they don't recognize him, but as he's talked to them, and it says this, it says, beginning with Moses, all the prophets, he explained everything to them. What was said in all the scriptures. See, they knew the Bible. They knew the scriptures. The scriptures he was explaining, they knew them. They understood theology. But their worldview, their understanding of the Bible did not allow for this. And then they encountered the resurrected Jesus, and he explained it to them. They wrestled with who he is, and then suddenly at that point, everything made sense. If you've never wrestled with who Jesus is, you've never looked at the data, you've never considered the claim, don't ask if it fits in your worldview, because it won't. But ask yourself, does it make sense for the world? Is it what my heart cries out for? Is it what I know I need? I encourage you, consider the facts, grapple with it. We'll talk about that a little more. I think there's some ideas we can come across with that. But So what it meant to the disciples now, what it meant to Mary. I love this part. I love this part. Now, Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Okay, the tomb is empty. The grave clothes are there. And she's like, this is the worst thing that could have happened. I thought Saturday was bad. As she wept, she bent over to look in the tomb and saw two angels in white seated there, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the feet, at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. You know, here's here's Mary. She's this ardent, devoted follower of Jesus. Why? Because we know earlier from Scripture, she was healed from demon possession. She was previously troubled deeply and tormented. She was emotionally and psychologically afflicted, which probably means, oh, undoubtedly means, she was excluded from any kind of meaningful community in her life. She was a social outcast with hardly any social interaction at all, probably living on the margins, probably poor and destitute. And Jesus dignified her. He rescued her. Imagine that. He's done that for her. She so deeply loves him. And now he's gone. His body's gone. Not only did he die, his body's gone. And she can't figure it out. And so she's just weeping, just wailing. The idea is just this broken hearted, just coming out of her. Now, have you ever thought about this? Imagine the angels. They're sitting on the tomb going, this is the coolest thing in the history of the universe. And we've been around for a long time and seen some cool things, but this is the coolest. Why are you crying? You're witnessing the coolest thing. Maybe not the coolest. That sounds so, so flippant. But this is history. This is the, the world is turned upside down, and you're sitting there crying. So I, you, you imagine them. They're, they're like, what is up with that? Why are you crying? So they say, hey, why are you crying? Why are you crying? And she's wailing in grief. 
First, the one person in the world who loved her has died, and now this indignity has been heaped upon him. And so, in verse 14, it's not on the screen. I forgot to put it up. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it, it was Jesus. He said, he asked her, woman, why are you crying? The second time now. Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Mm. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now, the first thing I get, you know, I understand this. People will say, this is so weird. Why didn't she recognize Jesus? Why didn't the two disciples on the road to Emmaus recognize Jesus? Because we're dealing with something that's totally new. This isn't his old body just brought back to life. This is something new. It's the same and yet not the same. And so he says to her for the second time, woman, why are you crying? And then to calm her sorrow, he, he, he speaks to her by name. I mean, you imagine, she's probably used to being called a lot of names in her life. Unflattering, terrible names, alienating names, unkind. But he called her by name, Mary. And at this moment, she suddenly understands what the resurrection truly means. And here's what it means. We will never understand who we are. We will never understand what we're worth until we're called by name, until someone calls us by name, not by a title, not by a function, not calling you crazy, you know, out of your mind, not to marginalize. And in the prevailing, I mean, in our world, and this is the world we live in, the modern Western world, we're always in search of an identity. We have an obsession for finding our identity, trying to figure out who we are. That's not wrong. Sociologists call this expressive individualism. And it's essentially the view that we, we ourselves are the primary authors of our identity, our own identity. And being a fruitful human being means you have to be able to express who you are. It means to honor and, 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 and give expression to that inner voice that's inside of you. You hear people when people say, listen to your heart. What does your heart tell you? And to do anything, anything, to hold that voice down, that inner voice that tells me who I am is repressive. You shouldn't do that. Now, I know there's some things that are repressive and they're wrong. I, I understand that. But our culture, if, if we think about it, is very different from other cultures. If we only look to ourselves for identity, we'll always feel lost. We'll always feel adrift. We'll always feel untethered, that we somehow, we're not living up to some cosmic Facebook profile that we're trying to live up to. We're making this all up for ourselves. It's kind of like this. If your primary influence that forms you, that forms your identity is your inner voice, how do you know if you can trust it? Because I don't know about you, but some that, and that little inner voice in me tells me I'm a loser. Sometimes that inner voice tells me terrible things about myself. That inner voice is quick to remind me of things I've done in the past that hurt people, that disappointed people. That inner voice, oftentimes, is very negative in my life. I don't want that to shape my identity. Say, for instance, you have a child, an eight-year-old child, who comes to you and says, 
you know, I've been thinking, and I've started listening to my inner voice. You'd have a very precocious child, I think, in some ways, but they said, I know who I am. I've found myself. I'm eight years old. I've listened, and I've found myself. What would your response be? Great. We don't have to raise you anymore. Right? You're good. Sweet. How I wish. Right? But your response would be something more about, well, let me tell you something. You don't really understand this, but there's so much more to all of this than you realize. You need to listen to people. You need to listen to your parents. You need to listen to the people who care about you. You need to listen to the people who have insight into you. You need to listen to people who know you well, who can help you form and understand who you are. You may have an inner voice at eight-year-old, but let me tell you, when you're 10, it's going to be a different one. And when you're 15, your inner voice is going to say different things. In 20s and 30s, 40s and 50s, every one of us. You know, I say this so many times. It's so amazing that we tend to think that right now I've reached the pinnacle of me. This is, you know, I was dumb all those years before, but now I finally got it. And let me just tell you, 10 years from now, you're going to go, I was dumb 10 years ago, but I finally got it. We always think we've got it, and we don't, and we don't. How do we get our, how do we get our identity? I don't want to listen to my inner voice. I don't always trust it. It's not, not by looking in a mirror and saying to myself, I am loved, I am accepted, I am valued. Because I know if I do that, I immediately go, no, you're not. No. I don't even love me sometimes, right? You get your identity when someone looks at you and says, you are loved. You are valued. You are known by name. For children, it comes from their parents. From Mary, it came from Jesus. Jesus knows her name. And she hears Jesus call her by name. When he did that, she said, this is the love of my life. This is the one who gave me identity and name. He came back for her. See, the resurrection wasn't merely a show of power. It was, in fact, a show of love that Jesus came back for people. He came back for her with a love that's stronger, in fact, than death. He died and he came back to her so that he could call her by name. And we, you, every one of us, we have to deal with this. And you may be thinking, I don't believe that. But you know your heart wants to. You know your heart wants to. You know that it resonates in some way deep inside. He tells her to go tell the message to the others. You know what? It's kind of interesting to me. The first person in the whole world that Jesus chooses to begin sharing the gospel, the good news of his resurrection, is a woman who has struggled with serious mental health issues, not a seminary graduate. He picked someone that everyone would tend to look down upon. It's interesting, uh, Celsus is a historian, a Roman historian, uh, early on in, in the history of Christianity, and he wrote attacking Christianity and, and one of the things he wrote was the very fact that the first witnesses were women disqualified. This is not to be believed. He said, because who, who can believe the hysterical rantings of a woman? That's what he wrote. That's the world. Not like that anymore, though. We're all very, yeah, we're good about that. 
sort of. <laughs> but to him, to him, there was no argument. Don't talk to me about any facts. Don't talk to me about changed lives. Don't talk to me about these people who all ran away from Jesus when he died. And then suddenly, a few days later, they all get back together and go, he rose from the dead, we're willing to die for it. Don't tell me that kind of stuff because it starts with a woman and that automatically disqualifies it. And that's what God did on purpose, which, you know what, is kind of in an interesting way. And I, it shows how trustworthy this is. Because if someone was making this up, no one in their right mind would start with a woman. They know they'd be disqualified for it. So it's very interesting that the, that the gospel writers all agree on this. So Mary gets back everything she had lost, everything she thought she had lost, and more. So what it meant to the disciples, what it means to, meant to Mary, what it means to the world. Jesus said, do not hold on to me. He's talking to Mary. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had, what he, what he had said these things to her. That he had said these things. I knew that sounded wrong. That he had said these things to her. She went and told him. All right. Very interesting now. We see the word seen. Here's this word seen again. What, which word is it? It's that word for, she says, I have, it's in the past tense. I have furiously evaluated the evidence and have decided he's risen. He's risen. It wasn't stolen. He didn't just awake from a coma. He has risen from the dead. And it, it, it's interesting because I want us to think about what it means for us when we think about what it means for Mary, because he's telling her, you're my ambassador now, go and tell. My salvation is not based on pedigree. It's not based on moral attainment. It's not based on talent. It's not based on good works. I mean, she's a perfect example of that. I save by my work, not your work. I save people not because they think they're strong, but those who understand they're weak and they cast themselves to me. I saved by grace. He says, go tell. Go tell that. He says, Mary, I came back for you, and I came back for the whole world, so you cannot hold on to me. I'm giving you a job. Go and tell. We are all charged with this. We would love to stay and be comfortable. We would love to stay in our own little comfort zones. Mary would have loved to just sat there with Jesus and just talk to him. He says, no, 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 not now. Go, go and tell. And he says the same thing for us. We are be, to be those people that go and tell. And it's very interesting how he says, he, he didn't say, um, he didn't say, I, I look at you now as, as servants. He says, go and, tell, go and tell the family, go and tell the brothers, your, your family. Why? Here's why. Because servants are known for what they produce. A servant is known for what they do. But in a family, how are you known? You're known for what you are, for who you are. You're known by your name. For a servant, the relationship is commercial. A servant provides something and you acknowledge them on that basis. You reward them for what they provide you. But in a family, it's communal. It's not commercial. It's deeply interwoven because people know each other in a family by name. And he's saying, because I'm ascending to the Father, 
I am going to reweave everything in the world that is unraveled, every community that has been broken. I'm going to put together all those things that have fallen apart. I can restore and bring back to life. And we are now a part of a family. And it's interesting for me, going through that, mentioning my family, and going through that experience, and finally one day yielding to Jesus Christ. And it changed my life. It changed my life. Some of the changes were progressive. Some of the changes were very quick, instantaneous even. But I was a different person. It was like a new life. It was like I was dead and now I'm alive. And he's saying, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. In other words, there's a name, and you're not merely a servant. You're a child. You're a sister. You're a brother. You're known by name. Back in Jeremiah, said, I think it's Jeremiah, uh, God says, I have tattooed, I have tattooed your name on my hand, on my palm, so that all the time God sees, says Bob. That's I'm assuming. <laughs> Each one of us is different. Every time he looks at his hand, he sees your name. He sees your name. You are known by name. And it's not like he's just been brought back to life. It's a new creation. G.K. Chesterton, I love his writings. He said, on the third day, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. What What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth and in a semblance of the gardener. Jesus, they mistook him for a gardener. Jesus walked again. God walked again in the garden, in the cool, not of the evening, but of the dawn of a new day. So this is what he's saying here. This is what we get here. And I would encourage you to think through this, just like they did. Mary says, when she says, I've seen the Lord, she says, I've thought hard about this. Now, I still have questions. I still see things sometimes that make me wonder. But I saw also that he was my savior. I saw that he lived the life I could not live. He took my sins. He died the death that I deserve to prove that he could take my sins. He rose again on the third day. And now through the Holy Spirit, he lives in me. He lives in me and works through me. I don't know how that works, but it works. And suddenly I'm able to live a life And it's not always this way, but sometimes I go, this is what I was made for. This is what I've always wanted. So we have this resurrection story, and it's an incredible story. I don't want to diminish that. It's unbelievable. And the story of our salvation is built on the four Gospels. That's where, that's where we get that. And I'll hear some people say sometimes, I was reading this the other day, a guy wrote, he said, four old books that supposedly eyewitness accounts written by primitive people 2,000 years ago, and you're asking me to trust my life to that? So the accuracy and the reliability of the four Gospels is paramount, isn't it? I mean, when you think about it, that's key for us. 
So next week, here's the hook. Next week, we're going to look at, can we trust the Gospels? Now, I talked about this some about five years ago. I'm going to expand on that. But in the last 25 years, there has been incredible strides made in archaeological evidence, in, uh, in, in all this stuff that, that the, the four Gospels talks about that verify these Gospels. We're going to talk about that some. Because if the four Gospels are not reliable, then, then we're, we're, we're kaput. We're wasting our time. This is a pipe dream. So I want to encourage you. Come back next week. We're going to go over the four Gospels, and we're going to go over some of the latest scientific uh, studies that have been done that point to the fact that they are accurate eyewitnesses account of things that actually happened. All right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this day. Lord, you know every heart in this room. For each one of us, Father, I, I, I just pray for each one of us we'd stop and think and consider and that, Lord, as we work through this, these things, and maybe even next week, we come to conclusions, we furiously analyze, we theorize, the Greek says, and help us to be open to allowing you to speak. I pray even this week, Lord, you would work in people's lives in ways that would direct them to you and in mine also. And Father, we thank you that this morning had changed the history of the world the way the world headed was altered permanently because of Jesus. And the results of it are on display all the time around us. Help us to have the eyes to see that. Help us to see you working. And Lord, pray that you would empower us to make decisions that honor and glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen.